Hello and welcome to Hellas for Hyphenates for May 2018. I am writer hyphen eight years of doing this, uh, Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is... Writer hyphen film critic hyphen gasping for breath with anxiety this month, Rochelle Semenovich. There must have been a good lot of films. Oh yeah, wait and see. <laughs> well, we begin with the big film of this month was, of course, Solo, which has the subtitle The 120 Days of Endor. No, hang on, I'm thinking of uh, a Star Wars story. There we go. It's the origin story of the roguish Han Solo. We finally get to see what he was up to about 10 years before the events of the original Star Wars film and get the answers to such burning questions like, how did he meet Chewie? How did he meet Lando? How did he meet the Millennium Falcon? Is there an improbably contrived reason for his surname? As Han escapes his Dickensian childhood home replete with a Fagin-esque slug alien thing voiced by Linda Hunt, we see him grow into the entrepreneurial pilot he'll eventually become, falling in with a group of bandits and using his wits to pull heists, evade the authorities, and reconnect with his childhood love. Rochelle, did you have a good time with this film, or did you have a bad feeling about this? (laughs) Look, um, this feels like a lesser instalment in the Star Wars world, but it's such a fun, familiar world that why wouldn't you revisit it? Mm. Um, yeah, I did have fun. I had fun a lot. I think um, Han Solo is is the most charming character in the Star Wars stories, and I enjoyed spending time with his younger, very handsome incarnation, which, who, you know, the actor who plays him, I think, really does look like a young Harrison Ford on cert- at certain angles. Yeah, yeah. Um, He's got the attitude. Yeah. It's nice to see the, how the gang got together, but it did mm. feel like they were going through those plot points of the, the other films and going, okay, well, yeah, let's cover this off. It's like the first ten minutes of Last Crusade stretched out to, yeah. you know. Yeah, it was a bit like, like, it really was like ticking all the boxes, but I, for some reason I didn't mind that so much. Like, yeah. usually that's the kind of thing that annoys me. Like, you don't need to... I, I guess prequels often feel like colouring in mm. rather than drawing something new and there, there was a lot of that and I feel like it's it, it is a little trapped by its own adhesion to continuity but it is still fun seeing like him meeting Chewie yeah. is great yeah uh, as improbable as the surname moment is I kind of like the way they played that I was like that doesn't suck as much as it should like yeah and like him meeting Lando is probably how that scene should have played out like yeah and Donald Glover is the perfect young Lando Calrissian it was like there's so much that works in this film that all the stuff that doesn't, I kind of forgive. The I had first so much ten fun. minutes was just awful, in my opinion. I just felt like, oh, this is just so clunky mm. and it wasn't working for me at all. But, you know, I got into it and, you know, it's a rollicking adventure. It's a pirate film. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's it's probably the best version of this concept. Like, I think the problems of with stem with, like, do we need to do this or not? But... I don't know. I think this is probably the best case scenario of this particular type of film. And, and given that I'm cool with it and I'm, I'd probably be happy to watch it again. Like Rogue One was probably in some measure, it was possibly a better film, but I think mm. I'm more likely to watch Han again. Cause the characters are, I was more into the characters, like just people being charming at each other. I'm, yeah. That's what, that's, that's what I enjoyed about the original star Wars. And yeah. So, yeah, I know some people have made the comment about the Han Solo character wrestling with the same moral quandaries again and again, and yeah. how this is kind of repetitive because in a universe where there are such bad baddies, why hasn't he made a definitive choice? How mm. can he be so changeable in his allegiances? Yeah. But um, that didn't bother me too much. Did you like the villains? 
yeah, they're kind of forgettable. Uh, no, I did like Paul, You've forgotten, Paul right? Bettany. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it took me a while. There was, uh, there, there's, of course, one big moment that we shouldn't spoil, but I don't know. That I think that was a big mistake. I think there's a big re- revelation that requires knowledge, like, you know, you have to be pretty familiar with the other Star Wars films for that moment to make an impact. Mm. And I think that was a, probably a bad call, but, mm. you know, it was dispensed with pretty quickly, so. Yeah. And what do we think about Ron Howard's direction here? I'm a, look, i got to be honest, I know it's a deeply uncool thing to say, I'm a big Ron Howard fan. Oh, me too. I love this film. Yeah. We're such stags. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I, I think workmanlike director is often used as an insult but mm. i think it's a really rare quality mm. and i think he's one of the best there is at that so yeah no I, I like that he directed it i read that some younger directors phil lord and christopher miller were sacked for trying to make it too funny or uh, something well is that true yeah there was that was a big drama at the time where it was like i don't think anyone actually knows the real reason like everyone sort of speculated and some varying speculation has been taken on as gospel and some people have said, oh, they were trying to do an original film and the Star Wars monolith wouldn't allow for that. And other people said, yeah, they were way out of their depth and didn't, and were just like improvising in scenes that, you know, they just went on forever. They didn't know what they were doing. So there have certainly been those conflicting stories. No one can really say until they see the films. I know a lot of people have a lot of affection for Lord and Miller. I've certainly enjoyed some of their work in the past but I, I i would assume if if we could live in a world where we could see both versions of the film i have a feeling i'd probably prefer the one that we got yeah yeah but, it's uh, not a bad film at all yeah not watch it again <laughs> well i don't even have a single segue for our next film which is tully it's from director jason reitman and writer diablo cody who are the team who gave us young adult and juno Charlize Theron plays Marlowe, an exhausted, sad and angry mother of two young children with another baby on the way. When she's given the gift of a night nanny by her rich brother, played by Mark Duplass, she forms an unexpected bond with the unusual woman who turns up every night for the graveyard shift. Mackenzie Davis plays Tully, the kind of mother's helper every mum might long for, in this surprising, candid and disturbing comedy about parenthood. Lee, did this film make you glad you'll never be a mother? <laughs> hey, don't rule it out. I can be anything <laughs> I want to be. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I, uh, I bloody loved it, though. I, did you? Yeah, I really did. Like, I've loved all the Diablo-Reitman collaborations up yeah. until now, and this, this year was no exception. I they do such, you know, I don't want to say interesting women characters because mm. all characters who are female, you know, should be considered in their own right. But, yeah, just just women who can be angry and dirty and sexual and still likeable and yet still unlikable. I think Charlize Theron here is just brilliant as, mm. you know, in this depiction of a mother who's just so kind of broken down by by the grind of being a mother. And I don't think we see that very much in our culture. Yeah. Um, I think often we, I think we subscribe to this myth that, you know, being a mother, it's hard and it's painful, but you forget all that because it's always worth it. But I think there's damage that's done um, by trying to do too much with too few resources. And it's a really common story um, of women struggling to mm. survive through extreme sleep deprivation. Yeah, I just love that this film goes there yeah. to, to show that. Yeah, it's, it's quite genuine. It almost completely avoids the saccharine. Mm. And, and it's that Hollywood thing of you can't, 
I feel like Hollywood has avoided showing motherhood being difficult unless you want to show that the mother is bad because it's like well either you love your child or you don't so if you love your child it must be easy and rewarding yeah i I always get excited when i see something i haven't seen before and there have certainly been many complicated complex films about motherhood before but you know this this felt like a fresh take yeah i mean there has uh been some outcry about the depiction of um postnatal depression Mm. in this film and some of the directions that the film goes towards the end we won't spoil it shall we um, Let's not. Yeah. Can I can I jump in and say yes. I picked the ending? Did you? Um, yeah, and I feel like that's a an obnoxious thing to say, partly because it flags that there is an ending yeah. to pick. But the reason I say that is that I know we have a tendency to think that whichever way we enjoy a piece of art is the way it should be enjoyed. Mm. So if you go in knowing a twist, you go, that's the best way to. Or if you go in not knowing it, you and generally I think ignorance is bliss. But there was something about the fact that I sort of pegged where it was going. And as a result, I got to see all the clues dropped in real time, the things you would normally pick up on repeat viewings. And I think that made me like it a lot more. I was like, oh, this is really clever and they've really thought about what they're doing here. Yeah. So, yeah, it's one one of the rare times where sort of, yeah, anticipating the ending, I think, enhanced my enjoyment. Yeah, it's an art. If you go into this film looking at it as an artistic rather than some sort of realistic depiction of what can happen to a person when when they're going through an extreme situation, I think um, you'll get a lot out of this film. Mm. And I also have to add that as someone who has long confused Mark Duplass for Ron Livingston, <laughs> seeing them in the same shot genuinely same. confused the hell out of me. Same. Like, our, like, so I first saw Mark Duplass in Hump Day, directed yeah. by Lynn Shelton, who has been on Hyphenates before. Yeah. Go back and listen to her episode. It was great. And watching it, I was like, is that Ron Livingston or not? Like, it, and, mm. and then seeing them in the same shot, yeah, you know, that, it's almost a piece of meta casting where one's playing her husband, the other's playing her brother. Mm. And I'm wondering if are they meant to be really similar, but I don't know. Anyway, yeah. I did I- like it. I did too. And I think we have to just give a shout out to Charlize Theron, who's just completely without vanity in this role. You know, she's done it before with um, Monster in Mm. 2003, where she played serial killer Aileen Warnos. But here she just really shows that convincing physicality of a mother who's had no time to herself. Yeah, I I think we we tend to use the word where people describe performances like that, they say brave, and it's Mm. always so loaded. Mm. I think a good way to describe it would be to say it's it's without vanity. She is an actor who is without vanity, and there are all those stories, like particularly in the 90s, there are all these stories started coming out about actors who had their own lighting people who they'd bring in, like the cinematographer. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to name names, but... um, I want those people to follow me around. (laughs) Uh, yeah, the idea of like the actor's vanity being the overriding concern of a film, mm. and then to go to someone like Theron, and there are many actors like her now mm. who will just do what needs to be done in service of the film and the character, and, and that's quite. You feel like you're in safe hands if you know that every, or you feel like every decision is going to be made for the benefit of the film. Mm. Um, maybe overrating that a little bit, but I, do, I like her a lot. I'm a yeah. big Theron fan. <laughs> yeah, same. Well, now to my friend Dharma. So it's 1974, and a high school kid is trying his best to fit in, even as he continues his obsession with dissolving roadkill in chemicals. Do you think you'd like this kid? Well, guess what? It's Jeffrey Dahmer, famous serial killer. But the characters in the film don't know that yet, partly because they're all ignorant hicks, and partly because he hasn't actually killed anyone yet. But we know, and so suddenly everything we witness in the film becomes a piece of the puzzle. Every little interaction, every rejection, every bit of oddness purports to explain why he became the way he did. Rochelle, would you like to see my collection of animal skeletons? Sorry, I mean, 
Did this film give you an insight into this mysterious figure? It did. It did. I mean, it's one of those films where you know the ending and so everything is a clue. You're right. Mm. And it's disturbing. But yeah, I think the interesting stuff in this film is around high school and how this character behaves at high school and how he's co-opted for comedy by his peers who kind of reject him but use him, um, exploit him, Um, how he tries to fit in. I mean, it really does show high school as being the kind of place that would develop serial killer tendencies if someone already had mm-hmm. them. And I don't know about your experience, but, yeah, I think high school high school can be pretty brutal. But, I mean, there's also the kind of um, depiction of his, his mixed-up family, his psycho mother played by um, Anne Hesch, mm-hmm. who I think is maybe a bit of a caricature in this film. But And, and even Dharma himself, who's um, played by Ross Lynch, he actually has a very good likeness to the mm. real Jeffrey Dahmer. I looked him up. Yeah. <laughs> um, the way he's ho- he holds himself and the way he's shot and presented is, is just kind of exploitative, I'd say. Yeah. I don't know. It's weird, odd, disturbing. Yeah, I, I think I agree with all that. It's like, I, And I feel bad sort of not ragging on the film, but like it's mostly well executed. I think it's, it's well made. It's very engaging and it looks good. And I, I think a lot of the direction of actors is really good. I think, you know, there are a lot of really interesting characters in the film, but I, I don't feel we've got any profound understanding or insight into him, like beyond the usual, you know, he walks without moving his arms mm-hmm. and he gets rejected in this point. And, you know, it's, it's pretty typical fare. You know, you know the way when you reduce some... Um, you know, the life of a, of a famous 20th century musician down, you get identical films like mm. Ray and Walk the Line, mm. where when you filter out all the most interesting parts of their life, you realise that the most interesting parts of their life are the same as everyone else's. And I feel like we're, it's sort of the same with, you know, serial killer origins. Not that we've had a slew of them in, in mm. you know, the canon, but, you know, a lot of serial killers tend to have the same basic origins. Oh, they were rejected, they didn't fit in. They almost fit in and then they didn't and that hurt more. And, mm. Okay, even if they do all have similar origins, the films shouldn't. The films shouldn't be similar. And um, and I should be able to cite other films that have done this, but I can't. And I don't know if that means that maybe I'm just imagining it or it just there's something... Either way, it felt familiar. Yeah, it's based on the international best-selling graphic novel by Durf Backdurf, who is kind of one of the characters here um, who takes on Jeffrey as their mascot. And I did think that was interesting, the way this group of kids who are sort of misfits but they're kind of normal kids takes on this this really disturbed kid as their friend and yet not there's no real friendship there. Yeah. Um, I thought that was the most interesting part of the film. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. Maybe I'm being a bit too harsh on it. I just, you know, just didn't grab me, and, and you know, that m- maybe that that's my fault. Maybe that's my friend's fault. Maybe it's society's fault, Rochelle. <laughs> Society, is it to blame? <laughs> Always. Are we born or are we made? Our next film is Breath, directed by actor Simon Baker and based on the novel by best-selling Australian author Tim Winton. Set in the 1970s in a West Australian coastal town, surprise, surprise, it's a Tim Winton story, we follow the adventures of two teenage boys, Pikelet and Looney, played by newcomers Samson Coulter and Ben Spence. Looking for adventure, they take up surfing the dangerous waves and form an unlikely friendship with a charismatic middle-aged surfer, Sando, played by Simon Baker himself. They also connect with his beautiful but damaged wife, Elizabeth Debicki, who has some unusual and disturbing fetishes. Lee, 
Did this film deliver the troughs and peaks you expected from a coming-of-age surf film? Are uh, troughs and peaks surf terms? I don't that, know. No. I think maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I'm hoping um, so. No, well, it hit the ones I was expecting because okay. it's a Tim Winton adaptation <laughs> and you pretty much know what you're getting. Um, this is, uh, not to repeat everything I just said with Dharma, but like it is a well-made film. I will probably see the next thing Simon Baker directs because I mm. think he's got a good eye, mm. good sense of pace, knows how to direct actors. But I just couldn't get next to the story. And I think a lot of that is to do with the fact that, you know, I'm, I'm not a Tim Winton fan. I've read, you know, I haven't read everything he's, he's written, mm. but I've I've read a few things and I've pretty early on found that I was getting the same stuff over and over again. I I do find something slightly cynical about the formula he uses to chronicle Australia. Mm. And it it, it comes across to me at least as very calculated. Mm. And like breath is no different. There is a contrived languor to it. I get Mm. why he's popular. He's very accessible. But if I want someone to chronicle, you know, the 20th century experience of Australia's middle class, I will stick with Robert Drew. Who is, I do love Robert Drew. Yeah, yeah. he's a great writer. But I don't, yeah, no, I just, I just couldn't, couldn't, couldn't get next to this one. Yeah, well, I was, I was kind of expecting it to be a little bit more exciting for a film that's supposed to be about fear and holding your breath underwater and surfing big, huge waves mm. and and kind of you know taking extreme risks. It didn't feel very exciting to me. At the same time, I like the central idea of the film about, you know, the fear of being ordinary and about withdrawing from risks if they're too much. Mm. And I think that's a very Australian trope, Mm. Um, you know, that reticence to trumpet bravery or daring do and sort of withdrawing from key plot points at the key moment. Sometimes that can work to, to give things a really realist um, poetic sensibility. Other times it's just boring. Yeah, I think there's some really great things about this film. I think Simon Baker's really, really good in the um, mm. role of the charismatic um, surf legend. Yeah. And um, Elizabeth Debicki's really, really interesting yeah. um, as this damaged young woman with a thing for being choked during sex. Yeah, there's some disturbing stuff there. There is, and I think the kids are good. I think there are some. There's some really interesting performances oh, coming out yeah. of the kids. The the what's his name Looney, the one who yeah. plays Looney as this sort of like out of control crazy kid. He's so, yeah, he's yeah. so interesting. It's, he's lightning in a bottle. I think they captured that type, and we've all seen, we've all met kids like that. Yeah, and I think they captured that really well. And look, and 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 I, I'm I'm almost more impressed by the lead because he had a much harder job surrounded yeah. by these big characters, yeah. and I think he sold it really well. But same time, what is this film about? Like, it's just beyond the standard coming of age, some stuff happened. Like, okay, holding your breath underwater, someone likes being choked, where you, you feel like you're being stifled in a small town. Like, it's just sort of dancing around a theme without ever mm. engaging with mm. one. And I was, like, searching for the, the point of the film, and I never found it. Yeah. Mm. Look, I love a good surfing film, and I grew up on West Australia's magnificent beaches. Mm-hmm. But for me, this one just didn't sort of capture what I wanted from it. I, I don't know, maybe that's my problem. I was wanting a summer, summery surf film, and Tim Winton's not going to give you that. He's going to yeah. give you wintry kind of downbeat um, coastal towns and um, some trauma, and you do get that here. Yeah. Yeah, look, look it's well made. Yeah. You know, adapt someone else next time. <laughs> Simon, <laughs> please. <laughs> 
Speaking of Simon Baker's breath, would this film play well for overseas audiences? Don't answer, because I'm only using that film as a segue to get into this episode's middle topic. Australia has long struggled with how to sell ourselves to not just Australian audiences, but overseas audiences. Do we try to present an authentic view of Australia, or do we contrive a reductive comical version that plays to the Outback Steakhouse vision of Australia that those in the US have? Do we fill the film with repatriated local stars that have made a name for themselves in Hollywood, or do we import overseas actors? The commercial pressures facing Australian cinema are so great that the commerce aspect barely figures into it. But still, we want to know the answer. And one person who can tell us the answer is this month's guest, actor, writer, director, Abe Forsyth. Abe, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. So, Abe, your uh, recent Ah. film, Down Under was about the Cronulla riots and the complex racial animus at play in Sydney. Your first film, Ned, featured a Hey Dad reference, (laughs) which I loved, by the way. I'm embarrassed at how hard I laughed at that. Um, That's, yeah, that's, I mean, that is the best joke in that entire movie. And that that was, it it, it almost made going through the experience of making that movie worthwhile just to to have done that joke. So high concept, so obscure, which is my favourite type of joke. Um, but your next film, the one that you're currently in post-production on, Little Monsters, it's a zombie flick starring yes. Oscar winner Lupita Nyong'o and Josh Gad. I'm, I get the feeling you might get some more eyeballs on this film than your previous two. Yes, yes. Well, I mean, that was certainly the intention. And, and you know, making this movie after Down Under, you know, we tried to make Down Under for an Australian audience primarily. Um, we wanted it to play everywhere, but... I, I was compelled to make it because I felt like we had the opportunity to make a statement about something which which I felt like had been ignored at, at that time. And it's it's sort of, you know, through the course of making that movie, all everything sort of bubbled up around the world. And, and locally, you know, Pauline Hanson was coming back when the movie was released. And so it, it, I, all of a sudden we were releasing this movie at a very heightened and relevant time Um but trying to get uh, an Australian audience to go and see an Australian movie is is next to impossible, really. And look, you know, it wasn't it wasn't the most commercial of, of movies. I, you know, I understand that, and we always knew that going into it, which is why we made it on a low budget. And you know, we didn't have any names in Down Under. That was part and parcel with making it at that budget level. But also, I didn't want names in that one too because I felt like the the event itself had to be the star of that story, and and it was a real ensemble and. So, you know, but these are all things that, that, you know, contributed to it not finding an audience at its cinema release on top of other, on, on top of other things um, and made it difficult to sell overseas. So certainly with the next movie, which, you know, we're, we're finishing off at the moment, um, the intention was to make something that played for an American audience. And then if you make something, and this is my opinion now, if you make something play for an American audience, then you have more of a chance of getting an Australian audience on the back of that because Australian audiences, we, we've been raised on primarily on American things and, and that's what we go and see at the movies too. So I'm making this movie and packaging it up in a way which uh, makes it feel like it's come from a studio overseas. Um, but I've also just found a way, luckily found a story which, which fits that but also keeps it having an Australian flavour and and there's logic to why there's overseas actors in this and, and why it's set in Australia. And the best possible version of, of this movie 
is uh, Australia in terms of its setting. It's it's so, it's sort of that story sort of confirms the thing we've always suspected, you know, that the cultural cringe thing where we need overseas, you know, audiences to validate ourselves mm-hmm. before we like it. So you, you've actually made that conscious decision to make an Australian film for Americans that Australians will then like. Yeah, and I mean, it's, it's it, so there's there's that aspect of it too, but then there's also the aspect of, you know, I, I can only really compare it with Down Under because that was the last thing that I, I worked on, but Down Under was a, a movie which tried to make an audience laugh, but then very deliberately tried to punish the audience for laughing as well and reminded them that this they were actually watching something serious. Um, so it delivered. It tried to deliver a message through um, through the tone of that movie, which which made it challenging for an audience. And certainly, when I was screening it at film festivals, um, uh, and it was always very well received at film festivals. But but at the end of these screenings, I'd go out on the stage to, to do Q and As, and and the audience is you know the, the the final ten minutes of Down Under are pretty brutal in terms of what happens to the characters, and, and there's one particular thing which is quite shocking. Um, which you know you can always uh, feel in the audience when it happens. So coming out to do these Q and A's afterwards, I was very aware that I was looking at an audience full of people that that you know were just basically been punching in the face. And you know, so again, making a movie that doesn't feel very commercial. This movie literally ends on a song. Um, I won't give away the context of how that song, what what that song is, and, and how it's performed, but. It's actually trying to deliver. I found a story and I found a way into to making a movie like this, which does the opposite. It leaves the audience um, uh, having gone on a journey with these characters and it leaves them on a high. And it doesn't mean it doesn't have cha- it has some challenging things in there, but ultimately it's packaged up, you know, like I said before, in a way that feels very familiar. So I, I don't think you can just suddenly go the, the way that we've got to make this work is to just import actors into the kinds of films that we're making in Australia. We actually have to try and find ways of making films that play for an, an international audience or an American audience, so or you know a commercial audience. And that doesn't mean you can't bend the rules and have fun, sort of subverting uh, expectations. But but it just means you have to be. You just really have to think through every aspect of the movie when you're when you're writing it, when you're conceiving it. You have to think about. How will you market this movie? Who's it for? You know, in, and in the sort of fractured landscape of cinema uh, exhibition, Netflix, and, and all that sort of stuff too. Like, what is the what is the right home for it? You know, you really have to assess everything from the idea onwards. Mm. And would you say that on a really basic, simplistic level, Australian films just tend to be more downbeat? I mean, the happy ending is just something we don't kind of seem to believe in with a lot of our films. Whereas, you know, I think we kind of want it still. Yeah, yeah. Look, I, I mean, I think so. I, think, I mean, look. At, at the same time, though, I mean, we just make such a small number of films every year here, too. And I, you know, I think um, we just don't have the population or the money at our disposal where we can be making, you know, more things and throwing more things out there. I mean, I try and support Australian film as, as much as I can, but but there's there is very little that I actually want to go and see if I'm if I'm being brutally honest. And, you know, my favourite Australian films tend to be pretty dark as well. Chopper's one of my favourite Australian films. But, you know, but I guess if you look at movies like, you know, Mira's Wedding and Priscilla, you know, that, that era, we were making films that were still dark, but, but, but also provided that audience with, you know, a full journey with their characters and, and a happy ending in their own ways too. So it's not like we're, you know, not capable of it or haven't been capable of it in the past, but, 
yeah, I, don't, I kind of don't know what's what's sort of happened in you know in recent years. It, it feels almost nostalgic to to come back to this conversation that we really haven't been having for a few years. You know, there was a long time where we were like, what is the role of Australian film? How do we you know, make it popular again. And, and even that, what you were saying, you want to support Australian films, but they are so dark is that it does... I think the thing that puts audiences off is that we keep telling them to support Australian films and it makes it sound like it's broccoli. not entertainment. Yeah, it's broccoli. It's, yeah. Uh, it's, yeah, I think that's... I think that, yeah, that's very, very valid, actually, too. And I think, you know, also it just comes down to the reality of... of I mean, you know, I've got a seven-year-old son. I, I don't get to the movies as, as much as I I would like to. I've now got all these options at home, you know, to watch things on Netflix and various platforms. So I just, I just, you know, I wait for things to, to, to come on the television at home. And, um, you know, the only movies that I really make an effort to go and see are, I mean, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm not sort of big on Marvel movies and things like that, but... But I, but I do go to the movie to like you know Star Wars movies and you know I go to have the big experience. So I think Australian films, because they don't provide that same level of experience in the same way as all the movies that people flock uh, to see now in in cinemas. I, I, we're kind of losing out there as well. What What do you think needs to change if you could you know select one thing to change about Australian cinema to sort of you know reinvigorate it? What What would that be? Um, no pressure. <laughs> no one's I, ever tried to answer this question before. <laughs> no, I, yeah, it's, I mean, I think it goes back to look. One thing you don't want to lose to is you know our voice and and the, and the, the kinds of films you know films like Sweet Country. You know, I can think of that as a recent example of a film where where you know that doesn't have a happy ending by by any means. But I feel like that was a really well told story and, and a really important movie, which which actually delivered overseas too. I mean, that really really travelled. So you don't want to lose movies like that, but I but I just wish that we could find a way of <sighs> commercial is not a, a bad word, you know. I think you know a lot of things that are deemed commercial are just terrible and disposable, you know. And and the majority of stuff that's coming out from Hollywood is that, and certainly you know that's that's a lot of you know things that people are, are going to see. But just as, as a recent example, I've been traveling a lot on on backwards and forwards uh, recently to the states and. I stumbled across, and I hadn't seen it since it first came out, but um, Chef, the John Favreau movie. Mm. And I've ended up re-watching that pretty much on every flight that I've done recently. <laughs> and I've watched it about four four times and just, like, because it's so simple and it's mm. so well-made and it's commercial and it gives the audience, you know, a journey to go on and, and characters to, to get behind and relate to. But it's just it just does it really, really, really well. Like, it's in my opinion, it's one of the best technically executed versions of that type of commercial movie that you can make we don't really try and i I can't think of an an australian equivalent of of uh, you know people making films like that there's no reason we couldn't make a movie like that it's so simple and so kind of it could have been done on a really low budget totally totally and it's just like it's so hard to make something play for a commercial audience yeah. this is certainly you know something that i'm experiencing at the moment and I'm, I'm very happy with the direction that we're heading in but it's taken a lot of work of of trying to understand the market provide what they need but also do it in a way that they haven't seen before so it does feel fresh and original and 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 like i said then finding you know fun ways of subverting expectations and but in order to subvert expectations you need to actually establish the reality like exactly the same as things that people are familiar with and you know, I guess I, 
I yeah, I, I can't think of any examples uh, like off the top of my head of, of Australian films that have tried to do what or at least what I, I feel like we're attempting to do with Little Monsters, our current film. Right. Well, I, I think uh, I think you've provided a pretty good template for the sorts of films we need to be making. And I mean, I don't think there are a lot of podcasts out there that have solved Australian cinema in ten minutes in the middle of the show, but I we think have. we've done it. Yeah. yeah. So, so well done, everyone. <laughs> But look, I mean, one thing I will say is, like, you just don't want us to lose, you know, our voice as well, too, because we do have a very particular sense of humour, a very particular, uh, you know, view on things and, you know, and, and films certainly, you know, so all my favourite Australian films have a very particular Australian bent to yeah. them as well, too. So I guess that's one thing that you don't want to sacrifice by by trying to sort of, you know, make something play for, for everywhere is, you know, losing that, that flavour. So, Abe, tell us, which filmmaker have you selected to talk about on Hell is for Hyphenates? Bong Joon-ho. And, look, there were lots of filmmakers that, like, I could talk about endlessly. And, you know, like, filmmakers like Peter Weir, Coen Brothers, George Miller. I'm sure you've probably done all of these people before. But he, I find Bong Joon-ho, you know, he's got a, a much smaller body of work in comparison with, with those people that I just mentioned, but I just find him fascinating with what he's done over the course of those, is it five films, five or six films? I, th- I think six um, features, yeah. I, yeah, I just find his work cap- captivating. And, and, you know, certainly someone that's, that's managed to, to stay true to himself, find an audience, but without sacrificing the, just the brilliant stuff which sets him apart from any, any other filmmaker that I can really see. He's got elements of other other filmmakers but i feel like he's so unique and there's no one actually like him working in in the world or in you know in the past that i can compare him to is uh, when did you first come across his work i think i saw the i think the host was the first thing that i saw and that was around the time that it came out and i was familiar with park chan wook and you know he was my only real entry into south korean cinema at, at that point but the host is it's it's not my favorite. I, I love it. It's not my favorite of his films, but just seeing this or the first sequence where you see the monster attack, which happens in broad daylight, and at the time the, the visual effects were incredible in comparison with other films that were being made. But it's not just the visual effects, and this is certainly something that applies to, to later films of his in particular. Opture, it's how he knows to integrate those visual effects into the story and how he uses the camera to really put you into what the characters are going through and experience it from from their eyes. And that's that's where I'm, I'm like particularly impressed with him as a filmmaker. And after I saw The Host, I saw uh, Memories of Murder and that, I mean, you know, a movie without any special effects, but but similarly, just the way he uses the camera, the way he 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 takes you through that world, puts you into that that very particular time period where that movie's set, and you just feel absolutely everything that those characters go through, which is you know I think you know the the, the biggest achievement of that film as well too, because you know as Australians, you know there's not a lot that we can sort of relate to in terms of the setting and certain sort of things that are so identifiable in in sort of South Korea society but he still manages to make you identify and feel like you're there which is a, a real talent it's certainly uh something that uh, you know as you say he's got those two very different types of films and I think that's true throughout all of his work he's got sort of the big special effects high concept films and the sort of down and dirty characters thriller mm-hmm. that sort of thing but 
in in both styles of films, I've noticed he does like integrating the sort of monstrous and chaotic with the mundane. So even in like his, yeah. his first film, Barking Dogs, Never Bite, and in Memories of Murder, which was his second, there's always something happening in the foreground, and then like there's usually a crowd of people in the background yeah. watching. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. Actually, I I hadn't seen, you know what. Barking Dog uh, Never Bite was the only film that I hadn't seen until, up until last night um, right. in preparation for, for this, and it was it was really interesting because you know I uh, you know I, I didn't love it, but it was it was fascinating seeing what you're talking about those things were gestating and and what they've grown to to become. Um, I found it a really interesting just study in someone that was just starting to to sort of uh, explore their voice and and yeah, I think you're right. The, there is there is this element of the the ordinary which which appears in different ways throughout throughout all of his movies. This is something that I noticed from rewatching a lot of his stuff just recently too. Like, there's a lot of movies where where people will sit and have a meal. Like he'll he'll show people just eating or certainly drinking as well. You know, appears in, in a lot of his things. But you know, even at the end of uh, Snowpiercer, Ed Harris's character at the end of Snowpiercer, you know, you go from these really big outrageous um, heightened sequences to just grounded with with people sharing a meal or, you know, and, and he really lets you sit and watch that too. And it's, it's almost like he's helping ground you um, amongst those bigger moments by doing that. I think, you know, he's very good at sending signals out to, to help land the tone for how you should experience the whole movie. Yeah. Mm. He, would you say that, um, I don't know, I watched the host for the first time the other day and it, it's just got so many weird shifts in tone between comedy and farce and tragedy and action. And I I found myself sort of scrambling to know quite how to take certain scenes. And I I thought the same thing was happening with Oksha as well. I mean, it's really interesting the way he balances that. Totally. And look, this is is why, I mean, I've become particularly obsessed with him over the last couple of years because this this sort of heightened um, thing that he does with tone is so, so difficult. And it's certainly something that, that... we tried to do it down under and we're doing at the moment with the, the film I'm, I'm cutting where it's like you're working in extremes, but then it's how do you ground those extremes to, to still make the audience feel something and, and go on the journey. And I think he's a master at, at doing that. And it's, it's one of the hardest things to do because to be able to be as extreme as, as he can be with, you know, certain sequences or, you know, subject matters, but then also get sincerity th- throughout that. It's like I, I've seen very few people be able to handle that juxtaposition because one generally cancels the other one out. And and it doesn't mean that he's always, I think, entirely successful as well. Tom, and, and But for me, the world and, and everything kind of still carries me through. Like, I, I love Okja so much. Uh, you know, that was one of my, probably my favourite film of last year. And I was watching it continually when we were filming Little Monsters, just as just as an inspiration and a reminder of just being able to tell a story in the way that he does in that movie. And there's certainly, there's, there's elements of it where I think he just absolutely nails. There's one element where I feel like it doesn't it doesn't work, and it, but, but still it never actually ruins the experience for me. And I think that's because the central relationship between the little girl and, and the pig is so well done that it actually just carries you through everything until the end. And I think, you know, I think the ending of Octure is, and again, ending on, on characters sitting around and having a meal, sharing a very simple, wholesome experience together after every crazy thing that has happened in that movie. 
I get to the end of that movie and I've seen it, I've lost count of the amount of times I've seen that movie now and I've just rewatched it three nights ago with my son and it just gets me every fucking time I'm in tears at the end of that movie, no matter how many times I've seen it because it's like he's just completely taken you on that journey with those two characters. Did it turn you vegetarian? No, and I feel I feel particularly bad too because the first time that I watched it, and I wasn't even thinking, I, I watched it on Netflix the first night that it came out, and I stopped halfway to order my favourite meal from a Thai place, which was a, a pork belly dish <laughs> with, with, with kale, and I suddenly realised when I was eating it. So, so no, no, it didn't. It didn't. In answer to your question. Okay. Well, um, we're, we're going to cut that out and send it to Bong, and he's going to be so disappointed. <laughs> One thing watching, because uh, I, I spent the last few weeks, you know, watching not just Bong's films, but your films as well, and noticing the uh, the idiosyncratic music choices, which is something I think you have in common with him. Uh, you, you'll go with a weird music choice for a laugh, and he'll do it, and I don't know what his motivation is. Like, he's got yeah. this weird, like, barking dogs never bite, has this bre- yeah. weird Brechtian piano chord, like, <laughs> yeah. mother opens with a Latin guitar. It's just, I don't know what the motivation is for his musical scores. Yeah, I couldn't, the, the barking dogs never bite score was bizarre. Like, that was, um, that, that one, I was, I couldn't, I couldn't work out what, what the meaning was behind that or why he'd chosen that. I mean, certainly, um, that sequence in Okja where it's, there's, there's that, inc- it's, I think it's one of the best filmed action sequences of, of like, I'd say, when we talk, when I talk about action movies with people, it's like, there's Fury Road, and then there's the there's the chase scene in Okja, you know, from the truck, the little girl chasing after the truck, which you know then goes into the um, the underground shopping mall, and then back out again, which ends ends on a shit shit joke as well. But you know, you listen to the way the music shifts and changes throughout that too. It's 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 crazy. But it, the first time I watched that movie, I don't actually consciously notice. I never consciously noticed those choices that he made i always sort of because i'm just swept up in the story so it's almost like it's sending you a message of like you know letting you realize that this is ultimately ridiculous but also grounding it with what's that song that that plays in octa when um it suddenly goes into a john denver song or something like that when when the pigs having the, the shard taken out of its foot by paul dano and I mean, like, the music suddenly just turns into this really heartfelt song with this, this person sort of singing singing at you after, you know, all this sort of action music, which and weird sort of mariachi music at one point mm. as well, too. But again, when this song comes on, all of a sudden it just hits you in the gut as well. And so, you know, that's a, that's a skill. It's not like just throwing shit at the wall. It's like he's been very deliberate with every sort of single choice that he's made in, you know, the soundtrack. You mentioned uh, Park Chan-wook before, and I feel like there was this sort of generation of, uh, of, of, I guess, film lovers who had grown up on things like Star Wars and Lord of the Rings, who had never really watched foreign films before, and the first sort of country that hooked them in was South Korea, and it was due to Park Chan-wook and yeah. uh, Bong Joon-ho. Have you witnessed anything like that where people who weren't into sort of foreign cinema are now like all in on the host or all in on, you know, Snowpiercer or whatever? Yeah, look, and I think, you know, whenever I would talk about South Korean cinema in the past to people that had never seen anything, I mean, I would say you got to watch Old Boy, and that was always the best, you know, way in for people, I guess, to experience the extremes of what South Korean cinema can can offer you. And, you know, that's a, you know, I, I think that's an incredible movie. And I really like Park Chan-wook. I've seen all of his movies, but I'm, I'm more fascinated by Bong Joon-ho as, as a filmmaker. And I think that's, 
it goes back to what we were touching on before, whereas he's just, with all the chaos, there's some way that he has of, of grounding that with, you know, particular characters and, and the, the journeys that these characters go on, which carry you through that. And I, I feel like he's, for me, is more successful than Park Chan-wook. And I revisit uh, Bong Joon-ho's movies constantly for that reason, whereas I don't have the desire to go back and watch Park Chan-wook's movies as much. I enjoy them when I first see them, but, but I don't want to go back and live in them again. You know, I think amongst all this chaos, he's, he's just got a real truthful grasp on humanity. And that, for me, makes it so much more interesting when you sort of throw it into these these crazy worlds, too, because you can then relate it back to your own life or, you know, in ways which I think ultimately makes it much more enjoyable and profound. Mm. If you had to pick a favourite, what would it be? Look, it's 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 either Octure or uh, Memories of Murder, but but it's probably it's probably Octure. And look again, you know, there's 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 one element in Octure. I don't want to say I don't want to say what it is, but there's one element in Octure that I, I really does really doesn't work for me at all. Whereas I think Memories of Murder is is you know really airtight in everything for me works in that movie. But I think the overall uh, experience of of Octure just like I said, it just gets me every time. I mean, I think the ending of Memories of Murder, too, is, is incredible as well in its, in, in its own way. And, you know, that thing of, like, a character looking into the camera at the end of the movie, like, yeah. it can be terrible. Like, mm. um, I love, love Paul Thomas Anderson, but, but I rewatched Magnolia recently, and I, I, that is so pretentious, the way that movie ends with that character <laughs> looking into the camera. Same with The Revenant. You know, when you get to the end of The Revenant and Leonardo DiCaprio looks into the camera, you're like, what? Why are you fucking looking at the camera? <laughs> well, um, you, you, do you know why he did that in Memories of Murder? Uh, it, well, my interpretation of it was that he's, um, you know, the killer's still out there. Yeah. And he's, he's looking at you and going, you know, are you the killer or are you, you know, you're, you're going about in society and is the killer going to be, you know, are you going to come across the killer? Yeah, I mean, but, um, you know, I know this is sort of a, a bit of a spoiler for anyone who hasn't seen it, but because it's based on a real-life thing, we can sort of get away with it. But um, it was sort of uh, South Korea's first serial killer case, and yeah, it remains unsolved. And Bong actually said he's almost certain that the killer would go and see this film because how could you not? And so he wanted the killer to be sitting there in the audience watching and have the, the cops stare at him down the barrel and go, I know you're out there. You know? I mean, this is Zodiac before Zodiac, you know. It was, the uh, cop, though, at the end is now, he's now selling ju- juices. Yeah. He's now driving around, he's got a new life and he's selling juice machines. Yeah. And it's like, that's, that's what I, I mean, that's what I love about that movie too, which is like the the journey you go on with that character that is, you know, so violent and so kind of just feeling his way through by beating, you know, beating people up and, uh, and being sort of really sort of bolshy and just trying to, just trying to get anyone to, you know, just admit to it so they can move on. You get to the end of the movie and, and it's like, he's, he's just, the way those characters change over the course of that movie is, is, is brilliant. You know, it's, and, it, and it happens gradually. Um, but it really makes that final image so so potent and i think you know zodiac too it's like it's a fascinating companion piece to zodiac because it's you know that thing of how do you catch a serial killer that well that stopped killing or that you know you just you're just never gonna know yeah in, in, interestingly re-watching all these i discovered that i mean there's so many similarities between his you know all the films that he makes but i think it's his non-supernatural ones that hit me the hardest like memories of murder mm. and mother like the, i remember the first Mother's time right. i saw mother it just destroyed me. I think it's a, a masterpiece. Um, 
And that opening sequence with her dancing. Yeah. yeah. It's just what a way to open a film. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, and the, and the closing, the final shot of Mother is, is incredible with her on the bus. Yeah. And, you know, and she gets up and there's the sun setting behind them and she's on that bus full of parents and all dancing and... Yeah, Mother's a, it's a, it's a really astounding film. And again, talk about, you know, just throw you in there with these characters and, and what you learn through the course of the movie about what really happened and how that sort of changes your view on things. And, you know, you, you don't condone what, what she does as a character, but you, you get it, you understand it. And that's a pretty incredible thing to be able to make an audience do that. Yeah. But was that was that was Mother success? I haven't even looked it up though. Was it successful? Like in in South Korea? I I actually don't know. I um yeah I didn't think to look that up. But uh, I have no idea. <laughs> I mean I mean it must have been uh, successful to an extent. I mean I don't know what got him Snowpiercer. Like the host was pretty. Uh, pretty uh, beloved around the world, so maybe that was what got him the Snowpiercer deal. But... Yeah, the, the, uh, yeah, the host was huge. The box office of the host was um, was huge. Mm. I'm actually just looking it up because I'm actually really interested to know if... Um... Oh, $5 million budget, $17 million return, so not not huge, yeah. but, you know, profit. Sure, sure. Um, do, you, do you have a favourite Rochelle? What um, I think I liked Oksha, but... Snowpiercer, I, I did enjoy, um, although I, it kind of lost me towards the end of it, I think. Um, but, yeah, just for spectacle and originality, yeah. Snowpiercer is a great ride, you know. It really is. And there's some sequences in it too where there's that sequence with the teacher and all the kids and mm. the guns and, and everything. And But there's that sequence where they go through the tunnel and the, they've got those night vision goggles on. And, and yeah. it's, it's horrific, that sequence. It's so well handled. And I think... You know, it speaks to his technical ability as a filmmaker too to be able to have the limitations of shooting in those confined spaces, but but still manage to to make each sequence feel unique and unlike the one that, that comes before it. And you know, that's a that's a huge skill. And and you know, certainly there's some big performance. I, mean, I think Tilda Swinton's fantastic in that movie too. And I think she is someone that can can walk the tightrope of, of you know delivering a big performance that actually works and provides you uh, enough sort of glimpses within it to, to, you know, carry something like that through. And, and again, it's just those heightened, those heightened areas that he works in. It's so hard. Mm. I think that teacher sequence is my favourite because it's, the, it's almost the strangest in the whole film. And re-watching the film, I didn't actually like it as much on second viewing. I was... Uh, it was something about its... its this might be why I prefer his sort of more reality-based films, because the, the, the mix of fantasy and reality felt really weird to me. It was, like, either too literal or not literal enough. I either wanted it to be all subtext or all on the surface. Yeah, right. I was, yeah, really struggling with that. And I think maybe Bong Joon-ho is a big fan of Terry Gilliam, not just because... <laughs> uh, well, they're both now cast yeah. Tilda Swinton in, in roles where she has to put on a weird accent and wear oversized teeth. But... Um, <laughs> Also, like, he calls John Hurt's character Gilliam. Yes, it's sort of right. that, that weird, you know, futuristic thing where I think I think he was really going for that, and it, it feels very Brazil in places. Oh, definitely. Yeah, no, it definitely does. And, no, I mean, you know, I, I love Terry Gilliam as a filmmaker, but it's been a long time since I've seen it. It's a Terry Gilliam film that I've loved, you know, and I, I feel like Bong is, is someone that is working at this time and really knows how to use special effects in the right way, too. I feel like, you know, so a filmmaker like Terry Gilliam has, has almost become too reliant on, on CGI in that same way that Tim Burton, I feel, has as well, too. Mm. They've lost that handmade quality to what they do. And I feel like uh, Bong Joon-ho 
you know, there's a lot of special effects in, in Snowpiercer, for example, but you really feel the, the set, you really feel the, the geography of where all those characters are and, and, you know, what's happening inside that train as all the special effects are sort of flying by outside. Um, and I think that, for me, really helps ground me through his sort of, you know, his bigger high-concept movies as well too. He just, he knows how to get the balance right. Yeah. Mm. And what about the comedy, Abe? I mean, you're a comedy writer-director. Do you do you take anything from his approach and add it to, to yours? Well, look, I think he does comedy similar to the Coen brothers mm-hmm. in, in, in this way, in that he knows how to make, he makes the situations ridiculous uh, enough but ground it with enough things to give you the cues of how to laugh at it and how to how to find the funny within it. And again, I keep touching on this, this thing in Okja, which I'm not saying what it is. I, I do feel like there's something in Okja. It's probably not hard to work out what, what that is. You've got I want to know. Think, I think Tilda Swinton is fantastic in, in Okja, and I think she, in both those roles, does something really interesting with them, but also gives you enough insight into where they've come from and understanding who they are. I mean, I might as well just say it. I think Jake Gyllenhaal is really, really oh, over yeah. the top. In a, and, and he, I think he's he's one of my favourite actors. You know, I think like Nightcrawler and certainly in Zodiac. And, you know, he's he's incredible. But I don't understand why that character is at that level. And and there's something that on the many viewings that, that, I, that I've had of that of that movie, there's a moment in there where when he's on camera for the first time, when he when he meets Octra for the, for the first time and, he goes from that sort of high screeching kind of voice thing and then when he's on camera all of a sudden he's speaking almost no- normally and it's like someone had the idea at some point of going, oh, hey, what if what if instead of being sort of like the kid's animal guy on camera with the high-pitched voice, what if we do it the other way around? So what if I'm like that normally and then when I'm on camera I'm, I'm actually just sounding like a normal person? Yeah. And, and, and it, it, it's a very odd choice which doesn't sort of pay off in any way. But like I said, it, it never takes me out of the movie like completely like because I'm, I'm able to continually rewatch it but it's I, I think there's an example of like you know you push for an extreme and it, it doesn't land and it's so hard to, to make movies with tone the way he does to to land absolutely everything you know I, that's what I admire about him too is that he does take these huge extremes because there's not many film filmmakers that you know do it or I can compare him to I wonder if that's uh, similar to The Host. Like, one thing I, om- I almost found off-putting the first time I watched The Host is, you know, I'm going in expecting a monster movie and you expect some, you know, stock characters or at least some familiar archetypes. And suddenly I'm being introduced to this guy who's, like, kind of a man-child, but he's got a daughter who's mm. more mature than he is. And, I'm, and I can't for the life of me figure out the family dynamics. Mm. And there's an Olympian mm. who's, mm. like, what, what is going on? And, and I think it works, but... It was so weird the first time I watched it. I was like, wait, yeah. get the monster out of here. I want to watch this family interact with one another. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I also think that's why I love watching South Korean cinema as well, too, because, because you don't have the benefit of completely understanding the culture. So you do have to keep up with it. And then through, because I totally agree with every, everything that you've said about those characters on my first viewing as well, too. But the more I have watched it, the more I've, appreciated it and certainly you know the way that movie ends as well too with you know the two characters that are that are left at the end again sharing a meal you know it's you can't predict the journey that these characters go on and i think that's obviously him as a filmmaker but i I think for me personally stems from the fact that i i don't have a, a great frame of reference for you know south korea other than what i see in the cinema right because I, I really noticed when i was watching octa again the other night and like i said i've lost count 
of how many times I've seen that movie. But and I think this is the gift of a movie like Okja, that the way it just keeps you just keep discovering new things in it. And this might have been an obvious thing, but but it was certainly something that I didn't really sort of put my finger on until until watching it this time, or at least um, was able to articulate it. You know, for a movie that is about, um, you know, there's so much, uh, so many faults in translation in the movie, which is you know, a really funny and interesting part of it, you know, about the different cultures um, uh, and, you know, the literal, that moment where uh, Stephen Yeun's character on purpose mistranslates, um, uh, you know, for, for the little girl. But uh, just that final moment with her and the pig where it goes up to her ear and... and you know, just it's it's like he's returning the gesture, the pig's returning the gesture that so she's returning the gesture that the little girl has given her before. And in a movie where it's like all so crazy with how everyone doesn't understand each other and miscommunicates and and you know is 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 against each other, there's a really beautiful clarity between those two characters throughout the entire movie, which helps make that moment so sort of profound at the end too, because it is it is just a reminder of, at the end of the day, what's important. And that's just, you know, being with your loved ones and feeling like that there's someone that understands you and that you understand them. So, again, it's just, you know, when you when you say it's a movie with a big CGI pig in it and a little girl, you know, it's just incredible that, that you know, one of those characters doesn't even actually exist in reality, but he's able to make it that special and beautiful at the end of it is, yeah, I'm... Yeah, I just, I just think it's an, an incredible, incredible movie. Mm. Absolutely. Well, yeah, everyone should definitely check out his films if you haven't before. You know, at least a few of them are available on Netflix. They're very easy to find. Um, his short films, I think uh, a couple of his shorts are online. We'll, we'll put some links in the show notes. And it's oh, worth, yeah, worth checking out his early stuff. Um, and his next film, uh, he, he's currently in production on Parasite, which sounds like the name sounds like it's the host part two, but it's actually a family drama. Oh. So he's, uh, yeah, so I'm really looking forward to that. He's, he's working with um, Song Kang Ho again, who was in Memories of Murder and the host. And Yeah, yeah he's such a fantastic actor. He, he, yeah. I mean, and look, and again, talk about, you get a whole bunch of different sort of types of performances from him in, in you know, the movies that he's done for, for Bong Joon-ho, but they're just, he's so compelling as a, as a performer. Mm. Absolutely. Well, Abe, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate Thanks, it. Oh, look, pleasure. Pleasure. Look, it's, yeah, it was a, I, I'm, you know, I've been listening to you guys for, for a while now and it's, yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's really lovely to speak to you both and, you know, be able to, um, uh, yeah, just talk constantly. Has <laughs> <laughs> been lovely. And we can't wait to see little monsters. Is there any um, news on when we might be able to do that? No, look, I, uh, we have there. There is a there is a plan that's that's in motion, but it's it's still a little bit early to share what what that plan will be. And look, you know, the realities of, of making anything is you know you're you're at the uh, at the whim of what's happening. You know, the mm. marketplace and. Um, uh, you know, so it's, I, I don't know. It's just it's probably the easiest way that I can sort of say, but the film will be finished in August and then we'll be ready to start um, working out what's the best way to present it to, to the world. Awesome. Well, we can't wait. All right, see you later. Thanks, guys. See you.